A very good afternoon. My name is Lakhia, one of the pastors here. So for those who are not familiar, we'll be going through a series of two ways to live. So there are six boxes on how to preach the gospel, how to share the gospel, evangelize to our loved ones. And today we reach box number five, and that is on the resurrection. So I hope you have very strong coffee before the service. And now we ask the Holy Spirit to raise you from the dead. <laughs> Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We do not take the peace of the land for granted. That we have a chance to open your word, to read, to hear the good news of what you have done for us, to reveal to us who you are. Help us then not just read and forget what we hear, but help us also to be transformed into your image. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the movie Gladiator, it's an old classic. The first slide. Yeah. A Roman general was betrayed. Uh, off it, off it. Yeah, don't betray me, off it. <laughs> I'll, I'll just click the slides. Yeah. A Roman general was betrayed, and his name is called Maximus, and, but he escaped death. And what happened to him in the end is that he was rescued by slave traders, but he ended up being a slave. So he was sold to become a gladiator. And at the time, all he had to do was to fight and keep fighting wild beasts as well as other slaves for the entertainment of the masses. And the only way for him to get his freedom then is to fight from the desert all the way to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. So when Maximus and all the other slaves finally arrived at Rome, they had no idea what kind of enemies they're going to face. So under the blazing sun, standing in the Colosseum, they saw the metal gates and they're waiting nervously what will emerge from those gates. And then when they saw the enemies arrive, their hearts melted. Why? Because these were not just animals or slaves. This is Roman soldiers, legionnaires, armed to the teeth. And they arrive not by foot, but in chariots. And fixed to the wheels of the chariots are blades. So their hearts melted, but the crowds laughed. They laughed in cruel delight. How can this bunch of slaves ever defeat such professional soldiers? At this point, Maximus, once general, now slave, he raised his voice, he stood up and used his leadership skills. And he said, stay close, stay close, lock your shoes together, stay as one. And so he said, the slide, please. <laughs> Thank you. And the slaves quickly gathered themselves into one group and locked their shoes together, providing some form of protection. As they huddled, they saw the horses and the chariots coming, rushing towards them, and the wheels churning and causing dust to fly off the ground. And sensing the nervousness of the slaves, Maximus shouted, Hold! Hold! And the chariots came faster and faster with the blades coming towards them, ready to chop them into half. Ho! He shouted, Ho! As one! And the moment of truth arrived when the blades cut through the, the shields, but they held on together and they lived to see another day. They were unharmed because they held firmly together and so they overturned the battle and won that day. 
In life, just as in battle, there are certain things that you have to hold firmly to. If not, all else will be in vain. So when our founding Prime Minister, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, was 87 years old, he gave an interview to New York Times. And he looked back at his years of nation building. They asked him, what was the one thing you held on firmly to throughout your whole career? What was the one thing? And his answer, social cohesion. Because to him, our society started with multiracial society from day one. And it cannot be divided by race, language, or religion. The moment for him when we lose that social cohesion, our nation will collapse. All will be in vain. So today I'm going to ask you a question. What about you? What are you holding on firmly to that you can't let go? And what about us as sons and daughters of God? What are we called to hold on firmly to in our lives? Today, Bible's passage is taken from 1 Corinthians 15, and it begins with the following words. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For the Apostle Paul, a leader of the Corinthian church, he was reminding the believers they are to hold on to the gospel that he preached to them. Remind is actually a light word. It was more like a rebuke because we see for the background of the letter, 1 Corinthians, the church faced multiple crises of disunity as well as sexual immorality. In other words, their lives did not reflect the gospel which they proclaimed that they believed. So they claim they believe, but in their lives they are moving on a head-on collision towards destruction. So what is the solution? Paul says, hold, hold firmly to the gospel. Do not move from it. In other words, you must profess and live the same way. If you profess one thing, you have to bear fruit in your life as repentance. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And interestingly, we see from verse 3 that Paul himself received the gospel. He did not invent it. And then he passed on to the Corinthians. Let's continue to see here. Verse 3, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. So since the very beginning of the church, the transmission of the gospel is from person to person. And everyone sitting in this room today has received the gospel from another person. Along the way, many people try to share with us. We are all recipients of the gospel. And as Paul has received it, he saw it as first importance to share it. And he shared with the Corinthians. So we ask, what exactly then is the gospel that is so worth sharing? that we have to hold firmly to. So in 2011, it's a very memorable year for Singapore because we, have two, we had two elections then, the general election and the presidential election. 
But for me personally, what was most memorable that year was the returning officer, Mr. Yamami. So to those who remember, it's this person who announced the results of the election with a robotic voice and a nasal voice. All through the night as the results come in, and then you see on TV, he always says the following words. These are the words that he will say. He said, pursuant to section 49, subsection 7E, paragraph A of the Parliamentary Elections Act, I declare, and he continues this through the whole night, right? And so he explained it because he had a fishbone taken out of his throat. That's why he sounded so robotic. But more seriously, what the returning officer announced every time was more important than who he was. Because what he announced is the arrival of a new government. For Paul, the apostle, what he announces through the gospel is the arrival of a new king, our Lord Jesus Christ. A new kingdom that doesn't rise and fall, a kingdom that will last forever, and a king that lives forever. So today, as we look at the content of the gospel, we will see what exactly is Paul announcing, and then we'll look at the implications of the gospel. So for the content of the gospel, he continues, he says here, verse 3, For what I received, I pass on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. So we see here, the gospel contains four major events, a golden chain of events. The first one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The second one, that he was buried. And the third one, he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. And the fourth one, that he appeared to many, more than 500. And so here, this is how we know for Paul that the new king has arrived. Here we have a man who lived a perfectly obedient life righteous life. And yet, he died for our sins on the cross, and yet he did not just remain dead, but he rose from the dead, physically, body and all. So this is world-shaking news that Paul announced. Because every other king, every other king in this world, would die or have died already. And every other founder of all the other religions of the world would die or have died already. There will be a memorial, a song, a festival, a flag flown half-mast. But Jesus died and rose from the dead, the proof that a new king of the world has arrived. So we illustrate this using the two ways to lift drawings. Then this will be box number five. And Paul was telling the Corinthians to hold firmly to the gospel because if they denied the resurrection of Jesus, then they were shipwrecked the faith. But this is the climax. And it says here in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 
So you see, Jesus' claim to the eternal king of the world is not based on some mythology that we wrote of inspiration. Rather, his rule is based on historical events, a true event that occurred of his resurrection, that he truly rose from the dead. So in our recent presidential elections, the election votes were counted in the presence of the returning officer, as well in the presence of the three presidential candidates who witnessed the process. It was an actual event that was witnessed with eyewitnesses. So for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was an actual event that's not a myth. It was, there were eyewitnesses, more than 500 of them saw with their very own eyes of the resurrected Christ. That's what he says in verse 15. Because if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. Then more than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. So it's not an exaggeration to say that today if somehow, if we can prove that Jesus did not resurrect from the dead, then our entire Christian faith should be rejected then I should stop preaching and go down for my coffee and early lunch. But the truth is I have to continue because Christ rose from the dead. You see, for Paul, if we deny the resurrection of Jesus' death on the cross as meaningless, then there's nothing left for us in our faith. Because if he just died on the cross like any other person, how do you know that your sins are forgiven? And those who believe and died and gave the lives for it. They were believed and died for nothing. Which is why we see in verse 15, uh, 17 to 19, he says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Which is why since the very beginning of this proclamation, many skeptics sought to deny the resurrection of Jesus. They will always cast a doubt on the reliability of the biblical accounts which recorded for us the four major events. And so uh, they again, let's do a recap. The four major events, Jesus Christ died. He was buried, which means literally there was a known specific tomb. It was not just an unknown tomb. It was a real tomb. And on that very tomb, they found it was empty. Jesus raised on the third day and a fourth point and he appeared to many. So what skeptics try to do then is to give an alternative explanation to what was recorded to all this. Let's take a look at some of them. The first one, right? The first one is Jesus, did he really die? No, he did not die. The first one, they say that, they call it the swoon theory, which means Jesus suffered so much on the cross that he fainted. And then they took him down and put him in an empty tomb, but he rested so well for three days and then he rose from the dead. No, and then he revived and then he pretended to rise from the dead. That's what they call the swoon theory. And then this is also what we call the substitute theory which means that Jesus himself never went to the cross. Someone took his place. And then when he appeared, ah, he had pretended to be resurrected. And that's the substitute theory. And this doesn't make sense because there's this group of Jewish leaders 
who die, die, want Jesus to die. They plotted and plotted to get him on the cross. They were eyewitnesses, the enemies, to see him die. They made sure that it was the right person who died on the cross. So in reality, Jesus' death is a historical fact. And not only recorded in the Bible, it's recorded according to non-Christian records in history. Let me give you just three of them. The first one is the Roman historian called Tacitus. He recorded about it. The second one is Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. He also recorded about that, and he's not a Christian. The third one is a Greek, Lucian of Samosata, and he mentioned it. Let's take one example. The one example we read here is from Tacitus, and he said here, consequently, to get rid of the report, the report that says that the emperor Nero set the whole Rome on fire, Emperor Nero wanted to what, shift the blame. So he fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. And the Christus, from whom the Christians had their name and origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilatus. In other words, Nero was blamed for the fire in Rome. He pinned the blame on the Christians. And here the Tacitus, the Roman historian, wrote that this Christ, from whom the name derived the Christians, he previously suffered crucifixion, the extreme penalty, under the reign of a previous guy called Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. So for the, for the Romans, this is a historical fact. There's no arguing about it because the Romans are precisely experts at killing. That's the only reason why they could expand the Roman Empire is by going to war. And for them, crucifixion was an act of shaming, of putting fear in your enemies. And so when they say that Jesus was crucified, they really meant he died. That was their professional job. And the biblical accounts recorded for us that the Roman soldiers in charge of the crucifixion, they saw Jesus already died, which is why they didn't have to break his legs. But, like in say in English, just to double confirm, they decided to take a spear and poke him at the right side, which pierced his right lung, his right heart, and the right portion called the pericardium. If you did not die from the cross, you have died from the spear. So we see that Christ's death then is a historical fact. There's no denying. And so the skeptics say, ah, we can't deny his death. Let's do something else. They say, ah, the tomb. Actually, Jesus had no tomb. He was somewhere else. He was placed somewhere else. And then they bought another tomb. And they said, ah, see, the tomb is empty. So that's how they say it. So they had come up with theories where crucified victims were not given a tomb. They were given a mass grave. So this tomb has been empty from day one. But it's not true because archaeological findings shown recently that crucified victims can have a tomb. So why had that theory? And then at the same time, why we see that it's a credible account? Because the women, they themselves, the women disciples, they witness how Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus' body in a specific tomb. And three days later, they went to that particular tomb with spices to anoint that body. 
which is what we read over here. They were on their way back to the tomb, the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Personally, this Bible account, has, to me, has a clear air of truth. Why? Because normally for men, we will forget to bring the spices. Only women will think of it. Because the male disciples recorded for us, they were hiding in fear. But the women are the only ones who thought of, ah, the body, go and buy spices. It's just like when my family, you know, when my kids were younger, we go for a family holiday. My wife will remember to pack for diapers, medicine, milk bottles, clothes, toys, and half the house. For me, I will pack only my underwear and my iPad. So, more seriously, the specific tomb that he was buried in was then found empty. And so, who were the ones that saw it? It was the women again who witnessed the risen Christ first. So the question is, if you were really trying to fake the account in those days, you will never mention women. Because in the first century Jewish women, they have very, very low status. So much so that the words are not counted in the law of court. They are not counted as credible witnesses. So why would they want to record it that is seen by women? It's like shooting themselves in the foot unless it really happened. And another strong evidence for the empty tomb is found in Matthew 28 verse 15. Uh, verse 11, 15. In this passage, the Jewish leaders, after they heard that the tomb was empty, what did they do? They didn't deny the tomb was empty because they knew the tomb was empty. So they come up with another theory, what they call the stolen body theory. They say, hey, take some money. Tell everybody. The disciples came at night and stole the body. The very fact that they did not deny the empty tomb and invented the stolen body theory was an unwitting admission on the Jewish enemies that the tomb really was found empty. And unfortunately for the Jewish leaders, the stolen body theory lacked credibility. Why? Because the first to see were the women. They would have to overpower the Roman soldiers and shift across the stone that covered the tomb, which they estimated conservatively to about 1,000 kg. And so finally, if someone would really want to steal Jesus' body, why would he take the effort to remove the grave clothes first? After you overpower all your enemies and everybody else, shift the 1,000 kg stone, and then you go take away the cloth slowly, slowly, slowly. Then you bring the naked body. No, because <laughs> if you had stolen the body, you would just carry the body, grave clothes and all. The fact that it was removed, it just debunked the stolen body theory. So we have established then the credibility of the biblical accounts of the death, of the burial, and at the empty tomb. How about the sightings of Jesus by more than 100, 500 individuals? And so recently I saw on social media, it's quite funny. It's, just, um, it's a screenshot from a mockumentary. This uh, show host, she was making a fake documentary about Shakespeare. And so she says here, eh? yeah, you say this, this is the actual school Shakespeare probably went to. So school in Shakespeare's day and age 
was vastly different to our own. That's why he said, well, why is it different? She said this, it's because in fact, schools then were far easier because they didn't have to study Shakespeare. <laughs> so, I had a good laugh reading this clever satire. Then I thought it was really a brilliant example of how modern people tend to do history, how we analyze the past. What do I mean? We use our modern context and superimpose onto the past. For example, here the show presenter, she had her own personal experience of suffering under Shakespearean English, right? There's no more hope for us colonized people. And so she presumed it would be easier to study when Shakespeare had not written his works. But this is far from the truth because in reality, schools were much harder then. Why? Students had to spend whole days, six days a week, learning classics in Latin plus Greek, plus French, because English was worth nothing then. And then, so Shakespeare's style of writing in English was because he was influenced by Latin writing methods, the rhetorical methods, which was very common to the educated people then. But for us who do not know Latin, it's very hard to appreciate Shakespeare. And secondly, to connect with his audience, Shakespeare wrote about things that during those days, they would have understood is common, common current affairs. But for us, we are so separated by time, we do not know what he was referring to. And that's why it's so difficult for us to read Shakespeare. So why am I talking about this? Because when it comes to explaining away the resurrection, the sightings of the resurrected Jesus, modern skeptics, they like to use modern psychology to come up with what we call the hallucination theory. What this means is, in this theory, it's proposed that the disciples were so sad and depressed after the crucifixion that they wished to see Jesus again. And so they begin to imagine a resurrected Christ. And for modern people, we, we appreciate this because we have really used psychology to remove, we secularize our world and to explain away all supernatural events. And just like in the Shakespeare example, then we superimpose our modern context on the ancient way and say, see, ah, those people then, they don't have modern psychology, right? They must be very, you know, uh, ignorant. So they wish for resurrection, so they saw the resurrected Christ. But the truth is really, really far from this. Why? The problem of this theory lies in the assumption that people of those days believe in resurrection. Why we say resurrection here, we're saying about a dead person coming to life, body and all. It's not the same about seeing a ghost. We're saying the same person rose from the dead and come back. It means the undoing of death. It's like I'm walking halfway and a mosquito flew and then lay on my cheek and I killed the mosquito. When my wife helpfully came to my computer, press command Z or control Z, and then the mosquito became alive again. No, it's not possible, right? It's not possible. No one will believe it. Just as imagine if my dad passed away, I mean, my dad did pass away, and three days later, I told my mom, Ma, Apa hui lai liao. She told you, you know, like, <laughs> no, nobody will believe in resurrection. And the same days, in those days, nobody believed in it. How do we see that? For the non-Jews, let's look at the Gentiles. This form of resurrection is ridiculous. At most, they say they will see a ghost. 
No one expected a dead person to come back to life. It was neither imaginable nor desirable. Please, your dead go to heaven. Why? When Paul proclaimed himself, we saw in Acts 17, about the resurrected Christ before the Greeks in Areopagus, what happened? There were those who heard it and sneered at him. And you may say, what about the Jews? Didn't they believe in resurrection? No, not all. Some do. And even if they did, it was a general resurrection. They believe that when the Messiah comes, all the dead will rise together at the same time. It's supposed to be a public affair, not a private affair. One man died and rose again. They don't believe such thing. So there's a concept that nobody expected nor wanted. So if they really, really wanted to hallucinate, it's not something they would dream up of. In fact, the disciples wanted a Messiah that was strong, could remove the Roman Empire, threw them out, but instead they saw that Jesus died cruelly, humiliated on the cross. That was why when the male disciples first heard of the resurrection from the female who came back from the empty tomb, they thought the women were talking nonsense. And then those other disciples, they refused to believe until they saw it themselves, like Thomas. And lastly, we had Paul, the apostle. He's a classic example of someone who was not sad at the death of Jesus, as someone who did not expect to see the resurrected Jesus, nor did he ever wanted to see the resurrected Jesus. And yet he saw the resurrected Christ. And despite all this, he was convinced that Christ rose from the dead, that he joined the other apostles to tell the world about the gospel, and he had to suffer and risk their lives for it. In fact, they had nothing to gain. Most of them were killed for the gospel. So in short, the resurrection was not an invention to pacify depressed souls nor the disciples expect the resurrection themselves, nor desire it, and let alone suffer for it. Which is why Paul wrote in verse 19, he says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we, of all people, most to be pitied. And then he continued, verse 29, now, if there's no resurrection, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? So on TikTok recently, there's a trend of videos what we call Girl math. Let me explain. So in this one video, a girl explained, and that's a joke, that she wanted to buy a pair of Cartier love earrings, which market price is $5,256. But she decided to buy the cheaper version called the Trinity earrings, which is $3,950. So in her mind, she made a profit of $1,300. So, and not only that, her dad gave her $1,000 of shopping vouchers. So to combine, at the $3,950, 
earrings minus the profit she made of 1,003, minus the $1,000 of vouchers, she only paid $1,650 for those earrings. And she said, these earrings are classic. You wear them every day. So if you wear them for four years every day, it will cost only $1 per day. And not only that, earrings come in pairs. You buy one, get the other free. So they're almost free. So <laughs> that's how she justified her purchase. Just in case, there's nothing girlish about girl math, okay? Guys do the same thing, right? We kind of big ticket items, whether it's a cars or a car or, or gadgets. Recently, my daughter was so happy. Skippity, skippity, went through my, my living room, knocked on my speaker, my hi-fi speaker, <gasps> dropped on the floor, boom. And then I rejoiced. I waited so long for this day, now I can upgrade. <laughs> See, so what do we learn from this? A lot of times, we have already made up our minds what we want. We made up our minds based on emotional reasons. It's either by fear or by desire. We want this so much, and so we already made up our minds. Or we are so afraid of this thing, we made up our minds. Then, after we made up our minds, we look for justifications. We look for logical explanations to justify our purchase or our decision. And so this means that having a high IQ does not always guarantee you arrive at the truth. Because it only means having a high IQ, you have more sophisticated arguments for the truth that you really, you really decided to have. In short, our minds are already closed. We have already made up our minds. So what can we learn from this? There are two ways, two ways to hold firmly to truths. So we can either hold on firmly to something we've really pre-decided and then make all sorts of justification for it, like doing girl math, or we can investigate clearly, see the truth, and as a result, change our lives according to the truth. And in terms of modern scholarship on the resurrection, Basically, there are two camps right now. Both camps, they come to realize the historical nature of the biblical records of the four events. They can't deny it. But one camp says that despite all the historical and biblical accounts, they will still not proclaim or believe in the resurrection. Because in their worldview, God cannot exist. And therefore, there can be no miracles. And so no matter how much data you present to them, they will never believe that a miracle has occurred. On the other hand, if we're open-minded in the other camp, that possibly there could be a creator God, that possibly that miracles can still occur, then we can see that maybe the four events recorded for us, they're historically true, that the most probable, that the most logical and the simplest solution is the resurrection occurred. That Jesus truly rose from the dead. That the new king of the world has arrived. Well, what then, we ask, what should our life be? What does life look like when we hold on to the truth of the unexpected resurrection of Jesus that nobody wanted? So when Pastor Tim Keller first found that he had cancer, his first reaction was denial. He wrote an article saying, growing my faith in the face of death. 
he realized that religious faith does not automatically provide comfort in times of personal crisis. Because ironically, he spent years, many, many years as a pastor, helping people walking through the final days. But when it comes to his turn, his reaction was this. He said very frankly, what? No, I can't die. That happens to others, but not to me. He shared very honestly that until it happens to us, death remains an abstract concept. Our beliefs about God, our beliefs about the resurrection, are purely intellectual. Something to understand, and then we file it away. And then he described why. He saw that the problem lies in our secular age. That because we, we live in modern cities, we have become so confident, so confident in our powers of logic, that now we judge God, and we don't let God judge us. That in our lives, we think we can tell God what to do, rather than let God tell us what to do. We think that we know better than God. And because in reality, even as Christians, how often we don't want God to rise again from the dead and mess up our plans and our lives. And so we want to wish God away. We find arguments to justify against His existence, against His resurrection. The human heart already has decided there is no God and we will tempt use our human brain to find reasons to justify this unbelief and this disobedience. And to wake us up from our spiritual slumber, God raised Jesus from the dead. This is a miracle that's so mind-blowing, so shocking, so unexpected, because it's the last warning bell from God. And how did Tim Keller regain his faith? He said he spent days reading the Psalms, as he learned to express his pain to God. And then he remembered that Jesus Christ laid down his life for him and rose for his justification. He remembered once more the grace of God shown to him, the grace that he did not deserve, that gave him the humility and once more regained the hope of resurrection for himself. Holding firmly to the gospel, of the resurrected King for Paul and for us as believers is literally a matter of life and death. So how then we apply this to evangelism? So clearly, sharing the gospel is not just about winning intellectual arguments because even if we are given all the good arguments, people might still not believe because they have already made up their minds. Instead, we should see evangelism not as an intellectual exercise, but as a spiritual exercise. We pray. It's about us becoming God's instrument to win over the hearts of men, both through reasons and both through our lives. Because the truth is, if you're being honest, I'm honest myself, sometimes our friends and loved ones are not convinced by what we say because our attitude sucks. Because when people look at our lives, they say, are you doing girl math? 
Or are you really, really a believer of what you say? Do you truly believe in what you share? Do you believe in the resurrection in your life? How does it look like? Look at what Paul says. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, if we truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus who died for our sins, then it is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. It means that every day we put to death our desires and we rise to life to obey God's word, to become living sacrifices. It means learning to serve, learning to love, and learning to forgive. It means every day we learn to say like our Lord Jesus Christ, to say to our Father in heaven, not my will, but yours be done. Not because God wants to spoil our plans of happiness, but because we now trust that God has better and wiser plans for us and the world. So we humbly accept that we don't know better than God, that God knows best. And why? Why would we do so? Because Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification. Because the true king of the world has arrived. Because if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's go to God in prayer. Our dear Heavenly, our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you truly died for our sins and you truly rose from the dead. Help us in our unbelief. Help us in our daily life to live by this truth, to die to what we desire and to live for what you would desire. And only then can we always live a life that is consistent with the knowledge of the resurrection. Because if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.